0: The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information visit villagezendo.org Good evening. My name is Bokshu and I want to start by extending my heartfelt thanks to everyone who is here contributing to this essential practice of Fuzatsu. And to those of you online who are equally integral to this practice of Huzatsu, I wish to thank you all for your participation this evening, because we are doing the work of millions in this ceremony, the work of millions throughout all space and time. And that's a big nut to crack. <laughs> um, so I'll just quickly review the ceremony and then uh, get into the precepts themselves. Uh, our precept ceremony consists of several distinct elements that create a seamless whole. We begin with a gatha of atonement, which is really the core function of this ceremony: is to atone, which in my version of it is to connect with all of the unskillful action, throughout all space and time, individually, collectively, we take that on, we connect with it, we recognize and acknowledge our contributions to all of it. And our opportunity to work with all of it, because it is all in each of us, completely. So then having taken the Gata of Atonement, we move on to uh, ask for the support of the essential energies and archetypes of our school. So we begin with um, the past seven Buddhas, the mythological Buddhas who preceded Shakyamuni, who was the first human being to recognize this incredible discovery. Oh, reality isn't the problem. I'm the problem, and I'm reality. How do I unravel that problem? <laughs> so we go on from Shakyamuni to others including Manjushri, who is on our altar here, uh, is the Bodhisattva of wisdom, the insight needed to understand in the moment, what might be the most skillful way to handle a situation, a challenge? And then, of course, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. Because wisdom without compassion is a very um, dry and sad exercise <laughs> in trying to do the right thing all the time. And that's really where I want to focus my attention. So. But before I get there. Um, so then we have this moment in the ceremony where we have a talk given by the preceptor. Your bows this evening were not to this individual, but to the preceptor and the precepts. Uh, and following this, we will have one last element, which is where uh, we say being one with all Buddhas, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha the three treasures, which are the 10th grace precept. So there are 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And tonight I've chosen one of them to discuss um, that I think encompasses all of them directly or indirectly. And you'll often find that if you read one precept, there are echoes of others that you can uncover one way or another in your thinking and working with the precept. So the precept I'd like to discuss tonight is the seventh precept, not praising oneself while abusing others. And I think this precept is exceptionally important now in this increasingly politicized environment because what most political discourse, in my opinion, seems to move toward is an us versus them simplistic categorization, a condemnation of the other, while lifting up oneself. People would say in this model, which is against this precept, I am the judge of what is right. I know what is moral and good. And I am the exemplar of this, and my group, my in-group, the one that I pretend to be part of, is defending right, defending the correct way. And those people over there, whoever they are, take your pick, whichever side of this you're on, they're wrong. And I must oppose them with everything I've got. I've got to stamp them out, exterminate them, really. Their ideas, their existence even does not matter. And so we, th- we see things like um, banning books. Never mind the ideology. To ban a book is to deny the existence of the ideas in the book. We can't have these dangerous ideas in books. They must be banned or limited to only certain people upon request. All sorts of barriers to ideas, words, the existence of history itself uh, is actually being debated and excluded from our classrooms and our libraries, classroom libraries, school libraries, and public libraries are all seeing this trend of controversies being ginned up, in my word, to exclude ideas that certain people feel must not be discussed or known. Certain aspects of our history must not be taught. And this can only come out of a, of a conviction that the person who is making these decisions of what can be taught or not, or can be read or not, is in possession of the truth. And that their vision of reality is the only one that is acceptable in the public sphere. This is completely antithetical to the seventh precept. Not praising oneself while abusing others. This is the essence of it. And um, so why does this matter? Apart from those of us who might feel we are individually or collectively excluded from classrooms, histories, libraries, apart from that feeling, uh, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it is an expression of and a cause of suffering. And if there's one thing I never tire of harping upon in my talks, is that this practice, in my view of it, is about alleviating and preventing suffering, preventing harm. And there's certainly no harm, uh, no shortage of harm in the world. You just have to pick up a newspaper, it's filled with harm from all sides and all directions. And um, I I was thinking about the precepts as a whole, and I really see them as a map, a kind of uh, diagram that we can use to actualize the goal that I bring to this practice of reducing harm, of reducing suffering. Each precept embodies within it multiple ways that people harm themselves and each other. The first precept, non killing. The second, Non-stealing, the third, uh, misusing sex, the fourth, uh, lying, the fifth, giving or taking drugs, the sixth, and this is closely related to the seventh, you really almost couldn't have the seventh without the sixth, is uh, discussing others' errors and faults. Of course, you can't put a group down, put someone else down while lifting yourself up without cataloging the faults and errors of the person you're putting down. So it's very interesting. I used to think of those two precepts kind of as one and the same, and they're distinct. Putting people down is the precursor to erasing them, individually and as a group, while lifting up oneself as the good person. And here is in my rambling discourse where I need to say that the precepts are not about morality super important in my view to say this because morality brings immediately in its wake judgment right I've got the right way I'm the good person you've got the wrong way you're the bad person if you take that approach I don't think you're going to get a lot of um, I don't think you're going to alleviate a lot of suffering that way I think you're going to cause a lot of suffering. If you succeed in making the other person feel bad, well, that's suffering, right? And are you really going to feel so good about yourself having put the other person down, made them feel like they're, they're just crap? Because they don't adhere to your point of view. They don't share your values, your frame of reference, whatever it is that you use to lift yourself up while putting them down. So, If you want morality, that's not where you'll find it. Actually, real morality is not about excluding and harming other people. The precepts are about ethics, and ethics are not about morality, they're about reflecting, reflecting on what might be the skillful way to handle a given situation, a given person who I'm in conflict with, how might I address what's going on to minimize the harm in it? To minimize suffering. And it's, it's a lot more difficult than being on one end of the spectrum or putting oneself on one end of the spectrum and putting those people who don't agree with me on the other end of the spectrum. So even, to, even as I'm, uh, pointing out the problem with morality and moralizing and moralists, I don't want to put them on the other end of the spectrum. They like me are suffering. There's no separation between me and other people who are suffering, just because the form that their suffering takes is different and not to my liking. It isn't about liking. It's about recognizing that I have an opportunity to reduce the harm in the world. So even those who are moralizing, I don't separate from them. But I feel in my work with the precepts that it's about ethics, not morality. So reflecting, noticing connections noticing what I'm objecting to in myself or the potential for it in myself, in my past conduct, or potential for it in my future conduct. In a flash, one could have a moment of rage, one could have a moment of unskillfulness that leads to rage. And so to pretend that we are not capable of that, that that's not part of who we are, well, I think it's a fool's paradise to imagine that we all have that perfect vision of who, who to be and that we can achieve that. So can we cultivate the subtle art of navigating situations, people, crises, global and local, recognizing that we are not separate from all that is, and not knowing, thereby giving up fixed ideas about ourselves and the universe. So they're all just flowing together. The precepts are like a cloud almost, you can see it, but where is exactly the boundary of this cloud? Where are the elements that are separate from each other? We address them separately in the text, but none of them are separate from one another. So, to go through them quickly, in reference to the seventh precept, non-killing, the first grade precept, I don't see a way to create an outgroup, to banish an ideology, to banish a history without, in a sense, killing. This is, of course, not the literal, although the metaphorical can and has led to the literal killing of people. Ideas about outgroups have been instrumental throughout history in killing many people. The Crusades, the Second World War, the the examples are endless where people pretended that they had the truth, that they were the moral ones and that an outgroup was immoral, had to be exterminated at all costs. Tremendous, tremendous suffering has been caused by that. Second precept, non-stealing. Well, of course, if you're denying the existence of another person, if you're erasing their existence, that is stealing their opportunity to express themselves, to be fully human, to end their own suffering. Third, uh not misusing sex well that's a little more of a stretch in this context but I think that we could find a way if I really wanted to be creative and bringing that into praising oneself and abusing others fourth um non-lying well that one's pretty obvious isn't it it is a lie that I have the truth that anyone has the truth that is an outright lie and a very damaging one. And I'm not going to lie, I've done that. I do that most of the time I read the newspaper, I tell myself I've got it and they don't. Are they crazy? Can't they see what's right in front of them? Well apparently not. (laughs) So I just have to remind myself that I'm, I'm kidding myself, I'm lying. And not giving or taking drugs? Well, isn't it a drug to think I've got the truth? It's a kind of inoculation against reality, isn't it? I've got this shining example that I am exemplifying and those bad ones cannot penetrate the sanctuary of my immune response to them. People actually use that language, don't they? In some of the public discourse we hear about, well, I'm, I'm the cure, they're the disease. Of course, we all remember when HIV first came into public life, it was viewed as retribution. Those who got it were responsible, it was God's vengeance on them. Imagine the harm that was done to people who are already suffering tremendously from that disease to be told that this was retribution and that they deserved what happened to them. So I could go on and on with it. I mean, it's obvious what the harm is in all of this. And it's obvious too, that it's frightening to not know, to not pretend to know, to take each step in total darkness. There are no answers. There is only this moment, this situation, these people, and what can I do to reduce the harm? And it's a tremendous opportunity for reflection, for growth, for a dynamic and ethical life. So I want to bring into this conversation briefly uh, some of the commentaries on this precept, the seventh precept. And um, the Zen Peacemaker precept version, actually, we usually do these in the order that they were created. So I'll start with Bodhidharma. All of Bodhidharma's comments on the precepts start with this phrase, Self-nature is subtle and mysterious. Ain't it the truth? start with the first word, self, what's that? Where is that? What are the boundaries of that? Are there boundaries? And then nature, well, we won't get into that. Self-nature is subtle and mysterious in the realm of the equitable Dharma, not dwelling upon I against you, is called the precept of not praising oneself while abusing others. So perfect, not dwelling upon I against you. It says it perfectly. And of course, Bodhidharma, uh, whether he wrote this or not, uh, whether he even existed or not is a question. But I mean, this was um, what, 500 AD, I think? And people have been doing this I against you thing for a lot longer than that. Somehow it never changes, does it? But we are here to recommit to the possibility of change and that we can be part of it, we can lead it. Then we have Dogen Zenji, our founding Japanese teacher, who's always poetic and eloquent. Buddhas and ancestral teachers realize The empty sky and the great earth. When they manifest the noble body, there is neither inside nor outside. When they manifest the dharma body, there is not even a bit of earth on the ground. How beautiful. Not even a bit of earth on the ground. And yet we walk with the precepts on the ground, on this earth that needs them so badly. And then we have the Zen Peacemaker order version of the precept, speaking what I perceive to be the truth without guilt or blame. This is the precept of not praising yourself while abusing others without guilt or blame, right? So if I put someone down, that's a guilt thing. If I put someone over there and say that they're immoral, that they're wrong, that they're the problem, that's of course a blame thing. No guilt here, no blame there. I don't take on guilt and I don't blame others for my feelings. I say what I believe to be the truth. Without guilt in myself, guilt in the other or blame in either. It's a very subtle art, very, very difficult. And that's why most moral schema don't go this way, because it's so much easier to simply say you're wrong and you should shut up. So much easier. And that's why we're only, what, a a few dozen people here. So um, these commentaries are beautiful and express it well. I do want to bring in somebody who has been exiled uh, because of his wartime views. But even though we don't necessarily adore some of what he said and did during the Second World War, I think these words are worth repeating. The oneness of self and other is the true reality. The absence of self and other is the true reality. One may call this either all self or all other. And this is from Yasutani Roshi. So um, I think these commentaries are much more eloquent than I am. And uh, I think I'll just close by exhorting us all, this one first and foremost, to never fall under the delusion that we have the truth, that we are right, that we know how to live. No one knows how to live. We're all struggling with that very question. The best way to address it is to simply take one step at a time and to support each other in this work of reducing harm in this very broken world. Thank you.